pray with me? Our Father, I just thank you for uh, this, this time together. I thank you for this day. I pray that uh, what we do here in this place this morning, uh, what we say, what we sing, uh, what acts of service we do, that it all be to your glory, that it would be to proclaim your greatness, that we would uh, hear, we would hear from what's preached, we would hear from what's sung, that we would hear from everything that we do, that we would hear about how great you are, how great Jesus is, how great of a gift it is that Christ came and lived and died and rose again for us so that we could know you and we could be in right relationship with you. Lord, teach us to walk in your ways. I pray, Father, this morning that you would say what you would have said and that you would have each of us hear what you'd have us hear, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts uh, to draw us closer to you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, like I said, we're in Psalm 131. Charles Spurgeon said that this psalm is one of the shortest psalms to read. It's one of the shortest chapters to read, but one of the longest to learn. I think that's probably true. We're going to read over it. Psalm 131, 1 through 3. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Three verses, Psalm 131, 1 through 3. One night several years ago, I was uh, up kind of late, and I decided to flip through and see if I could find a movie to watch. Nothing too serious, because, you know, I kind of wanted to fall asleep. That was the point. And, uh, yeah, I like to go to sleep with the TV on sometimes. Anyway, so I'm looking through. I find a movie called Click. It has Adam Sandler in it. That means it's a comedy. That means it's not going to matter. And it's probably kind of on the stupid side, and I could fall asleep. So I press the OK button. I pull up Click. And like at 2 o'clock in the morning, I find myself weeping on the couch in the middle of the movie. All right, it's not a comedy. That's not a comedy. Don't, don't think it is. So <laughs> I pull up Click. I'm watching the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, this is basically how it goes. This guy, Adam Sandler's character, you know, he's working hard, trying to get a promotion. He's got all kinds, of, he's just covered up with his work, right? And pretty soon he's getting frustrated because of how much he's putting in and how long it's taken to get a promotion and the time he's missing out on his family and the time, you know, he's missing away from his wife and his kids. And so all of a sudden, through weird circumstances, he comes upon a remote control that not only... Uh, controls everything in his house, all his devices, but what he soon finds is it actually controls his life, too. And so he could press fast forward and the dog, you know, get through the dog barking, right? Uh, And pretty soon he he fast forwards to get to that promotion. Like all the stuff in between is just too much. He's frustrated. He presses fast forward. Life zips by. He gets his promotion, right? Pretty soon... It's just one thing after another. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, he goes through the dog barking. He gets his promotion. Next thing you know, he's like fast-forwarding through his wife talking. I would never do that. But, you know, anyways, and, but what he doesn't know is that the remote control is remembering his preferences, right? And so all of a sudden, it just starts doing it on its own. And pretty soon, it's years later, and he's missed out on, you know, all the mundane stuff. It's just the highlights, like his, his kids are getting married. You know, his wife's got a divorce. They've moved on. He wakes up, and he's an old man, and everything's b- gone. 
And then I could just like weeping, like, no, don't let this happen to me. Uh, it's, not, it's not a funny movie, like I said. But it's only after his life and family have slipped away that he realizes that his life was as much about the ordinary, everyday moments of being with his family and of being with his kids as, as it was about highlights, right? Life is just, about, just as much about the ordinary, everyday, mundane moments with his family, with the people that are in his life, as it is about the highlight reel. Now, I said at the beginning of this, this series, the series on the Psalms of Ascents, uh, that one of the things I really wanted us to take away from these chapters was that it isn't up to us to be extraordinary for God. It's not up to us to be extraordinary for God. God will use our ordinary to do the extraordinary things that he does. It's one of the main things I wanted us to get from this series in Psalms of Ascents is it's not up to us to do the extraordinary. God does the extraordinary, and he'll take our ordinary and do those things. And that's the tension that this song in Psalm 131 really starts dealing with. We have to question, are we able to calm and quiet our soul? Are we able to find peace and joy in the ordinary, in the everyday, in what seems like the mundane? Or are we clamoring at all times to be extraordinary, to make ourselves great? Are we only living for the highlight reel, right? And the good news for us this morning is that we can rest from our toiling to become somebody great. We can take a rest from our toiling to become somebody great because God will use your ordinary to do the extraordinary things that he does. Let's just take a closer look at the scripture here. I'm going to reread Psalm 131, 1 through 2. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Now we know from the heading, we know from the start that David wrote this psalm, King David. And it's hard to know out of which of his experiences of in his life that he wrote this song. We don't know uh, where, where, when, exactly. But we do know who David is, right? We know of David from 1 Samuel and in Acts chapter, th- chapter 13 when uh, Saul's kind of stacked up next to David, that God chose David because he had a heart like his. Because David had a heart after God's own heart, right? And he would do the will of God. Now, if you know David's story, you know he messes up. I mean, David messed up big time for sure, but if if you think over the story of David, time and again, I see this sentiment of Psalm 131 as evident in his life. Like as I was preparing this week, I went back uh, and read a few of David's stories. I read over David versus Goliath. I can almost hear this, this humble prayer behind David's fight and behind uh, as a backdrop as he prepared to fight. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. It was like a backdrop against the story. He's going up against Goliath, the giant, the warrior that nobody wants to take on. And he's saying, I'm not setting my eyes on things that are too great and too marvelous for me. I went back over the story of when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Are you familiar with that story? When he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, he dances uncovered. He dances naked in front of everyone. And when his wife 
who was also Saul's daughter, she questions him and said that, that it was before the Lord. He said that it was before the Lord that he was dancing. It was the Lord who had anointed him to be king. It was the Lord that had made him who he was. It was the Lord who does great things. It was the Lord who delivered Goliath to him. It was the Lord who had always won those battles. And he was dancing before him, and he would become even more undignified than that. And I read the story, and I was just holding back the tears I could hear the humble prayer just backdropping that story again. It's a song that David had to be singing over his soul. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. We could keep going. We could go through all the stories of David. But David's highlight reel has scenes like defeating Goliath, defeating massive armies, escaping Saul for like a decade as he tries to take his life. He even was spared Saul twice. And then returning the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Those are some of the highlights. And every great David story has David humbly following God. The great parts of David's life has David humbly following God, lifting God's name up as king. He's not out looking to be too great or too marvelous for himself, he realizes how great God is, and he lifts him up as king. And each story has David content to walk in whatever way God would direct him. What's crazy is that in almost every one of those stories, as I went back and looked, in almost every situation, there was some outside voice. There's some voice in the story trying to get David to reach higher, trying to get David to go further, trying to get him to be greater and more marvelous than he actually is. And David denied it in those stories. Saul dressed him up in fancy armor, right? Gave him the best weapons to go and fight Goliath. But David took it off and he took a sling and some stones and he walked out to the battlefield with just a humble faith in the greatness of who God is. David's sidekick when he had the chance to take Saul's life, encouraged him to take it while he had the chance because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And if you take his life, you'll be king, right? But David decided to honor the Lord and not make himself great. He said he's going to honor the Lord and would not take the life of God's ordained. And so he left that job to God to deal with. And his wife would have had him present himself as more kingly, more distinguished, kind of above everybody else, uh, you know, walk in a manner that uh, is worthy of a king. But David humbled himself before all and danced naked, undignified before the Lord because of his greatness. And here's the thing. I think that we all, all of us, hear and listen to those outside voices that would have us reaching higher for ourselves. We all listen to the voices that would just have us go a little bit further, reach a little bit higher for ourselves and to make ourselves great. And honestly, I think we have a hard time seeing how they could be wrong. The serpent in the garden was cunning. It was easy to believe. And so the voices we hear as well are cunning and they're easy to believe and we have a hard time seeing how they could possibly be wrong. I mean, what can be wrong with being your best self? What could be wrong with being my best self, with taking advantage of all the talents and opportunities that come my way? What could be wrong with that? But as we listen and as we believe these voices that whisper in our ears from everywhere, 
our ambition and our sense of adventure and our, yeah, our, uh, it, our, our longing to be great can become untethered and we have no bounds. That's what this is about. It's a grounding because we become untethered. We have no bounds. Our ambition, our sense of adventure, our aspirations have no bounds. We have inspirational quotes everywhere. I really kind of don't like inspirational quotes for the most part, just to be honest. I'm not saying you can't listen to any inspirational quotes. I'm just saying I'm not really a big fan of them. But we have them everywhere. Maybe you have them on your calendar, on your desk, or one of those little flip book things. Uh, Maybe on social media you see them pop up all the time. Maybe you have an app for that, right, where you have the inspirational quotes of the day or something. And like I said, not all inspirational quotes are bad, but... Sometimes I wonder if we uh, even stop to weigh the motivational quote of the day against the gospel, against what, the, what God has to say. Here's a few I read this week. I, listen up. Here's one. If it makes you happy, no one else's opinion should matter. Oh, that's inspirational, right? But what about God's opinion? Does his opinion matter? And can you even trust, this is a question, can you even trust your happy feelings? If it makes you happy, can you trust that what you think is making you happy is really going to make you happy, is really going to provide joy? Can we trust our happy feelings? Will this thing that makes you happy today produce a joy that's lasting? Or could there be consequences later that produce pain and suffering for yourself or for others? Right? I mean, that little inspirational quote, that sounds fine for a moment. If it makes you happy, no one else's opinion should matter. But that's not true. It's not true. Take, here's another one. Take every chance you get in life because some things only happen once. Well, if that was a good one, then David would have killed Saul and he wouldn't have left it to the Lord. Take every chance you get in life because some things only happen once. The question is, is living for the moment actually wise? Do you have to take every opportunity that comes your way in order to live a life that's full? that's meaningful, that matters? What about opportunity cost? Are you familiar with opportunity cost where you spend something here and then you you lose something on the other side? What will taking this chance today mean for the chance you might have tomorrow? What does the Bible say about that? Just last week we talked about waiting on the Lord in Psalm 130, right? How can we wait if we have to hop on every train that comes along? There's a... There's little trusting in the Lord for our satisfaction in that statement. I'm just going to do one more. Here's one. Sometimes you're all you have, and sometimes that's all you need. Sometimes you're all you have, and sometimes that's all you need. And when you're feeling all isolated and down, maybe that makes you feel good, but that's a lie. No, 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 no. Sometimes you're all you have, and sometimes that's all you need. I'm never all that I have. The Scripture says that I'm the Lord's, and he will never leave me or forsake me. I'm never all that I have. I'm never totally self-sufficient and without need of God. He's all I have. Everything is his. Nothing is mine. He's all that I have, and he is all that I need, always. Like I said, it's not about motivational quotes, but it's about who you and I are listening to, right? Are we listening to God's better word? Are we weighing the voices that are speaking into our life against the word of God? Or are you listening to yourself and listening to others whispering in your ear? I think this song in Psalm 131 is designed to speak truth to our hearts and to help us speak truth to our hearts. 
to remind us of our tendency to get carried away by whatever wind blows our way. And this song, especially in the first half, is for those who tend to reach for the stars and get stuck in the clouds. And I know there's some of us here. I am one of those too. This song is something we can sing over our lives because we have a tendency to reach for the stars and get stuck in the clouds. The first half of this psalm, it helps put our aspirations, our ambitions, our sense of adventure into perspective. We aren't created to do great things for our own greatness, number one. We're not created to do great things for our own greatness, and we aren't created to do great things for God. We aren't created to do great things for God. Because if we have our eyes set on doing great things for God, there's likely some unbelief in us that God is truly great already on his own with what, without what, whatever we can bring. We were created to live, listen, we were created to live for the proclamation of God's greatness, for his glory. Not for our own greatness, not in order to make God great. God is already great on his own. We weren't created to make him great. We were created to proclaim how great he already is and always has been. So if I had an inspirational quote, it would be that our greatest moments are the moments we are at rest in God's greatness. Our greatest life is the life that rests in God's greatness. Because that's when God will use your ordinary to do the extraordinary things that he does. You want to see great things happen? Live from a place at rest in the greatness of God, and you'll see the greatness of God. And if that word ordinary, where I say, God will use your ordinary to do the extraordinary, if that word ordinary doesn't sit well with you, if it kind of, if you don't like it, I get that. I don't like it either, because we want more. You want more. You want to do something awesome. You want to be different than everybody else. You want to make a difference for everybody else. You want positive change. You want evidence that you have some purpose, that you have a purpose. You want evidence. And so ordinary may not sit well, but if you're hearing me in a way that makes it not sit well, I think you might be hearing me wrong because this Psalm of David, it's not about, I'm not saying it's about stifling ambition and adventure, but it's about rightly directing it. Right? What I'm really just saying is that the greatest thing you'll ever do or be a part of will come from a heart that's content and at rest in all situations because of the trust you have in God to do the awesome work and the trust you have in God to make the difference and the trust you have in God to make positive changes and to restore like he said he would restore. Paul says it well, how he realized this to be true in his own life. It's in Philippians 4. 11 through 13. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This isn't about Paul being able to be all things to all people and in every situation be the great guy. It's about Paul living out of the greatness of God and Paul living at rest in the greatness of God so that he can be content and at rest in every situation. And I have to wonder for us, how would God use 
this church full of people? How would God use a church full of people who laid down their individual pursuits for personal glory and greatness? What if we all laid down our individual pursuits for glory and our own greatness and we were living from a rest in God's greatness? How would God use a church full of people who have laid down their great endeavors to make God great in order to sit with each other? What if we gave up our endeavors to make God great, the thing that we're going to do to make God famous so that he'll finally be great? What if we gave it up? What if we confessed that we can't make God great, that God's great on his own, and we laid it down, and we did that in order to sit with each other, to pray with each other, to read the word together, to talk about God's greatness together, to be together, to eat together, to pay bills together? What if... God did that in our church? What if this was a people who laid down our own greatness to rest in God's greatness? In Acts 2, he used a people just like that to save thousands of people and establish and grow the church so that we can even hear the gospel today. They were a people content enough in the greatness of who God is and the salvation provided through Christ. They were content enough in him to live together in that way. See, God wants our ordinary, and he invites us into the ordinary with each other, with him, to use us in his extraordinary work. It was ordinary life in Acts 2. They were just eating together and praying together and living together and spending time together and paying bills together and just kind of living life together. They weren't doing anything that extreme, but God did something extraordinary with those ordinary people. And we get to hear the gospel today. I'm telling you, we may not all know what we want, but I know what we really need is for this song, Psalm 131, to be the backdrop evidenced in our story of Redemption Church and of this people. We want Psalm 131 to be a backdrop that is evidenced in our story as it is in David's. We need to be humbled and to be singing this over our souls. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Psalm 131, it doesn't end there. It keeps going. And in verse 2, it says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. We have to note that it doesn't just say that my heart and my soul is like a child, but it says it's like a weaned child is my soul within me, like a weaned child. And here's the thing. I see this all the time, but as the the pendulum sort of swings, right, some of us need this song, like I said, to ground us from our ideas of loftiness and greatness. And on the other side of the pendulum, some of us... uh, need this song to lift our hearts from the crushing weight of worry and anxiety and fear. Commentator Derek Kidner writes this. He says that some need freedom from the nagging of self-seeking for your own greatness, right? And others need freedom from the bondage of delusive threats and fears. And he goes on to say that this verse draws an analogy between the child which no longer frets for, what's used, for what it used to find indispensable 
And the analogy is with the soul, which has learned a comparable lesson, right? My daughter Ansley is two years old. She's very cute. I don't know if you've seen her. Uh, my daughter, so she's two years old now, but we no longer have to hold her bottle and feed her, right? It's kind of sad sometimes. You kind of wish you could just hold them and feed her, but she's like, get off me. You know, she won't let me try. Uh, she no longer let, makes me hold her bottle so that she can feed her. She no longer just screams when her diaper's dirty or when she's hungry or when she needs something. Um, she can use words, right? She's learning how to talk. She can talk pretty good. She can tell us what she needs and what she wants. And many of the things that she's able, many of the things she wants or needs, she's able to actually get for herself or do for herself now. She can throw her own banana peels away in the garbage when she's done. She really likes bananas. And she wants them in the peel. No, she wants them out of the peel. Anyway, she can throw them away. And she can even help us clean up the messes around the house, right? When it's time to clean up the playroom or whatever. I'm not saying it's a great job, but she can put the things in the boxes and she can do the work. She can help. And see, as a weaned child no longer is consumed with the anxiety of their own needs for food and shelter, like my daughter, they are able to begin to function, right? They begin to walk and they talk and they can communicate their needs. They can even take part in contributing to the family by helping with household chores and such. And some of us are not on this side of the pendulum, but we're over here. We're so consumed with our own worries about tomorrow, with what we'll eat or drink or wear or what you'll become, that there's no freedom to fix your eyes on the who behind who God is. It might sound familiar from the Sermon on the Mount, but some of us are so concerned with what we'll eat or what we'll drink or how we'll provide or what's going to happen tomorrow that we don't have freedom to fix our eyes on Jesus and to seek first the kingdom. We don't get to know God. I love the phrasing in 131 in, in David's song that it's like a weaned child with its mother. It's like a weaned child with its mother. Because our soul needs to know what it's like, not only to know that there is a God, but what it's like to be with God and who he is. To have God with us. See, while the fruit on our trees may look kind of different, some consumed with reaching the stars, and while others are consumed with just meeting basic needs, I'm convinced that at the root, we all have the same disbelief. We all have the same unbelief. We don't know the who behind who God is. We don't know him. We don't know him, and we don't know what it's like to be with him because we've not been weaned to a point where we could let go of our frets and of our fears and of our worries about what we'll eat, about what we'll drink, about what we'll wear, what we'll experience, what we'll become, what we'll reach to, or how great we'll become. Sure, there's a God. We believe that. Sure, there's a God. But we don't really believe, if we're just honest, in the day-to-day, we believe there's a God, but we don't always really believe that he is love, that he's really good, that he's all-powerful, that he's great. We don't really believe that he's gracious, that he's faithful, and that he keeps his promises. God's not great. That's why we take control. We have to take control. We have to be the masters of our own destiny. God isn't good at least not to me, I don't even know if he knows me. So if I want the good life, I'm going to have to look somewhere else. 
think that's at the root of a lot of our unbelief that this song can speak to. These are the unbeliefs at the root for us. We are either consumed with fears and anxiety about meeting our basic needs, so much so that we're unable to take part in the family, or we're consumed with our longings and worries about what we will become and what we'll leave, what we'll leave behind in our legacy, or whatever, uh, that we're just so out for our own greatness that we forsake our family, and we forsake being with God. So David sings this song in Psalm 131 to quiet our souls so that we can experience the with of God with us. And in the hour of our heart's unbelief, we can sing this over our soul and speak this to our heart as a reminder that our unbelief is unfounded. God is truly great. God is really good. God's gracious. God is glorious. And God is with us. If you look online at our message series, there's a short description there about this series in the Psalms of Ascents, and it reads like this. It just says, Our faith has a tendency to operate as if, while God is real, he's distant and hardly attached or concerned with our everyday lives and circumstances. The Israelites scattered in exile felt the same tension. However, God has always said different. And through Jesus, he's proven different. God is with us. Always, even to the end of the age, which is from the closing of Matthew. And if you remember, just a few months ago, we were in Matthew. If you weren't here, you can check that out online. But we did Matthew for about a year and a half. And if you remember from our time in the Gospel of Matthew, we noted how the book opened and closed with this, the evidence and promise that God is with us. It started and ended with that. Jesus, in the beginning of the book, who was God and is God, stepped humbly onto earth as a baby named Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's such good news for us because he's not far off. God's not an absentee parent, right? He's came to be with us. And the more we understand what Jesus, who is God with us, the more we understand what he has done and the more, the more we'll see who he has proven God to be. The more we understand what he's done, the more we'll see who God really is. And the more we see God for who he really is, the quieter our souls will become. Jesus came. This is good news. Jesus came. He lived. He died. He was buried. And he rose again. That's all through the book of Matthew. And he rose again with a promise, as Matthew closes the book, that he will be with us even to the end of the age. He will be with us even to the end of the age. And the call of this Psalm of David in Psalm 131 and the call of the Great Commission, they sink together. That's what I'm getting at. David, who was with God like a weaned child with his mother, makes the charge in this last verse, in verse 3 of Psalm 131. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And Jesus, who is God with us, promises to be with us from this time forth and forevermore. And through his work of redemption, we can take him at his word. He's with us, and he'll be with us forever. See, that's a great hope. And we talked a lot last week about hope. Psalm 130, we talked a whole lot about hope. Last week, we were really talking more about the beginning of hope, that is like confessing who God really is in spite of what we have believed, which we're doing a little bit of this week as well. But it was a crying out and an 
in the initial act of repentance where we're turning away from the things that we're putting our trust and our hope in and we're turning to Jesus and we're putting our hope and our trust in him where we can find peace and, uh, and, and courage to keep moving on. And, the, and hope is the charge of this week's psalm as well in Psalm 131. And it's much of the same, but it's a song of David. It just sort of seems to like kind of ooze out of actual experience, right? It just comes, it seems like it just comes out of actual experience, experience and out of a realization of continued need for reminders to hope in God along the way of discipleship or else risk becoming untethered and going out for your own greatness. See, repentance isn't, it's not a one and done thing, right? Discipleship is a journey, and that's what we've been talking about. These psalms were sung on the journey as the pilgrims would make their way up to Jerusalem to worship God. And discipleship is a journey that requires a steady, content walk in the way of truth. I'm a forgetful person. We are a forgetful people, and we need the repetition. We need to be able to speak the gospel into the everyday of the journey. That's why these are songs. That's why they could sing them over and over and over again because it would remind them of these truths along the way and it would speak to the heart. We need to be reminded in our heart and soul of who it is that we are with. We are with God and he is great and he always has been great and you can't make him great and it's not about you being great. He's great and it's great to be with him and Jesus is with us. And in him, there is proven hope, peace, and courage for the everyday journey of discipleship. Through what he's done and his coming and living and dying and being buried and being rose again, promising to be with us always, even to the end of the age, and giving us the Holy Spirit. There's hope and peace and courage for the everyday journey of discipleship. And when we forget him, we'll begin to hope in ourselves again, or we'll begin to hope in something else, in somebody else's Story. We'll begin to listen to the other voices and the influence to shape our own truths, whatever that is. We need to listen to this song, and it's a reminder that Jesus is the good news for us this morning, and he's the good news every morning. Jesus is always the best news for us. One from one side of the pendulum to the other, the charge is the same for all of us. It's to hope in the Lord alone from now and into eternity. Hope in the Lord alone from now and into eternity. That's not a hope in your own abilities and in your own greatness or in your own work or in your own fame or in your own platform. It's hope in the Lord alone from now and into eternity. Because your greatest moments will be when you're at rest in his greatness. And you can rest assured that God will use your ordinary to do the extraordinary. And God will use our ordinary to do the extraordinary he is great and he is doing great things we can rest assured that he'll use our ordinary to do the extraordinary and it'll be more satisfying than anything we've ever dreamed up or imagined it's more satisfying than any star we could reach for to rest in the greatness of God I'm telling you the truth I want you to try him. I'm telling you from experience. It's not, all, it's not like I'm not messed up, but I'm telling you, you try him out on this. It's the greatest thing ever. 
deny yourself, deny your own greatness, say no to the voices that get your heart all twisted up in this direction or another, and put your hope in the Lord and resolve to wait and to be content in him. Try him out on this. And sing the song of your soul. Be reminded to continue to follow hard after him and not yourself. And then give up something. I mean, like, give up as you deny yourself. Give up the extra stuff on your schedule and make time to spend with God. Maybe that sounds cliche. I'm not kidding, right? Give up something on your schedule and make time to be with God, to get to know who he really is and what he's really like. Try him out. Try spending time with God and see if he doesn't start changing your heart in all kinds of great ways. Or wait to buy the thing, whatever it is, until you can actually afford it, until it won't put you in debt, until it won't cause a bunch of turmoil. Try that and spend time with God and just see. Maybe God will even redirect your desires to be for something else. Or maybe he'll give you the thing. Commit to stay in the hard place or in the hard season or in the hard job until God provides something else. You may find that God shapes you in that space like you could not be shaped elsewhere. Just try him. I want you to see what lies on the other side of waiting, on the other side of putting your hope in God, and the other side of resting in the greatness of God. It's better, it's more satisfying than any adventure that you can go on or any ambition that this world will sell you. Resting in the greatness of God is more satisfying. Hope in the Lord alone from now and into eternity. That's the call of this psalm. And your greatest life is a life at rest in his greatness. And you can rest assured that God will use your ordinary to do the extraordinary. And I promise It'll be more satisfying, and it'll be far greater than anything you ever dreamed up or desired. You can rest assured, he'll use your ordinary and our ordinary to do extraordinary things. We're going to move into a time of response, like we do every Sunday. And this is just a time uh, where the band will come up, and they'll lead us in some music, and it's time to worship him, to worship him and say, you're really great, you always have been great. I can't make you great. My worship doesn't make you great. I'm just telling you that you're great, and I want to rest in your greatness. We can sing. We can pray. We can reflect in this time. If you want to pray with somebody, we'll have somebody in the back. There's an offering basket in the back, tithes and offerings, and this is, something, this is where we can give as an act of worship as well, so you can do that there. And then also we're going to come and take communion like we do every week. You can come down the middle. You can take the bread, and you dip it in the wine or the juice, his body and his blood, and remembering Christ. And we're proclaiming to ourselves, it's a reminder, kind of like this song, it's a reminder that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he's the best thing that's ever happened to us, and he's the good news this morning, and he's the good news every morning. And he's saved us, and he's rescued us, and he's made a way for us to be with God. And it's amazing. And we're proclaiming that to one another, we're just reminding each other of that as we do it. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to come and to make that proclamation as we do this Uh, as we take communion together. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not come, because like I said, this is what we're saying in our action, that Jesus has saved us, that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, that we're submitting all of life to him because of how great he is. 
And if you can't say that, we don't want you to say it. Rather, we'd like you to hear what we're saying and take Jesus. Like I said, there'll be people who can pray with you. We want you to know Jesus Christ this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, just, man, we just thank you for your great love for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've made a way for us to be with you, that you are with us. That you stepped into this world to be with us and that you'll never leave us, that you'll never forsake us. We are never our own. We are always yours and you're with us and you are great. Father, help us to know and find the, the satisfaction and the joy that comes in living in the purpose which you created us for, which is to make your name known, which is to glorify your name and to, to rest in your greatness and tell others about your greatness. And Father, I pray that you just stir our hearts to a place where we can say, hey, we're not looking too high, we're not looking to things that are too great or too marvelous, for us, we're looking to your greatness because you're great and you're marvelous and so our souls are quiet, our souls are content and we are at rest in your greatness. And you are going to do what you're going to do and we're just thankful for being a part of it. Would you just move our hearts to rest in you? We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.